You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that even though 95% of animal cloning fails, the first cloned mammal, Dolly the sheep, was born July 5th, 1996. She was named after Dolly Parton because she was cloned from an adult memory cell, and she lived for six years, and the whole time she begged Jolene not to take her man. But up being, anyway. You have to know Dolly Parton's music, which means, well, you know, you probably are over 30 for that to be funny. But it was funny, all right? Okay, enough of that. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is Dr. Gregory Pence. He has a 40-plus career in bioethics and is one of the leading academic voices around the ethics of human cloning. Uh, He's been uh, labeled a bit of a rebel by the science community for believing that cloning should be accepted by society. He's testified in U.S. Congress against a bill that would have criminalized all aspects of human cloning. Uh, He's the author of several books that are sort of field standards about this, and he read a book called What we talk about when we talk about Clone Club, Bioethics and Philosophy in Orphan Black. 
Uh, if you haven't had a chance to see Orphan Black, Orphan Black is the first TV show to use the word biohacking, uh, which is one of the reasons I like it. And it's, it's actually a fascinating show uh, and uh, a good sci-fi thing. So Gregory, welcome to the show, and I'm glad you're a fan of Orphan Black as well. I am a fan, and um, there's also an interesting story about Dolly Beggy that you may not know. Oh, pl please share. Well, a lot of people said that Dolly died early because of she was cloned, and that's not, actually not true. She died early because she was fat, and how did she get fat? Well, when journalists came, she learned to train them by <laughs> begging, and they fed her a, a lot of treats. And because she was prone to a respiratory infection, they raised her indoors on concrete. So she would stand up on her feet, and she got dysplasia in her hip uh. from standing, and she was fat. Uh, and then she eventually got a respiratory disease, but she basically begged her whole life for treats. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, in fact, a recent study just uh, proved, I got a copy of it, that her sister clones uh, are are alive and well. And oh, very cool. Reaching a nice old age. So a lot of people who are against cloning were trying to say that, you know, because she was, the cell was from an older lamb, she was kind of born old. Her telomeres were short. It's not I was going to ask you about that. Her telomeres were not short? Well, it's controversial. Uh, some, there's one study that says that her telomeres were short, but her sister clones are all growing to a nice ripe old age and they seem fine. So it's kind of like, the, is the glass half full or half empty? Kind of, you can see what you want. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying there. Although we can quantify the length of telomeres in her sisters, right? Uh, have they done that? They yeah, they're, all, they're all fine. They're, they're all, all fine, okay. So whether hers were short or not, it appears that cloning doesn't cause short telomeres. It appears it does not. Although, the, you know, one of the things I've found out in my career in bioethics, and this goes back to like AIDS and genetically modified food, a, a lot of people see what they want to see about the facts. Uh, I, I think that's true for facts in just about every, every aspect <laughs> of being human. Right? But as a, as a bioethicist, it was amazing, amazing to me that scientists are so much this way, that they, they argue over facts. Um. There's, there's two kinds of scientists. Uh, there's a kind of scientist who says, um, that would be profoundly interesting if it was true, tell me more. And those are the kind of scientists I hang out with. And the other ones who say, that, that, let's see, that could not happen, therefore it did not happen, therefore you're a lying asshole. And, and those, are, <laughs> those are usually the kind of people I steer clear from because, well, there might be an agenda with one of those two people. Uh, and you could say, that seems unlikely, uh, I, but if it did happen, I don't know something. And like that, that's where all the good stuff happens. Well, I, I am a kind of radical because I've been around for 40 years and I was back here in 1978 when James Watson, who was a Nobel Prize winner, and Max Perutz, both were against assisted reproduction, test tube babies. Uh, the, um, I, I remember um, they said horrible things would happen. Now we've got a million American kids created you know, by, as test tube babies, very wanted. So you've got to be really careful. Uh, people have a way of change. When I, there used to be a textbook of mammalian physiology that my me medical students used to use in 1997. It said, it is a law of nature that once a cell becomes differentiated, it cannot be returned to its undifferentiated state. And Ian Wilmot and Steve Wilson 
prove that false. Yeah, it sounds like they didn't know about lasers. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can do a lot to change cells with lasers, my goodness. Well, it just goes to show you that sometimes the so-called law of nature is not a law. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, of one of the quotes about the Manhattan Project uh, a long time ago uh, when they were questioning whether they should or whether they even could build the bomb. They interviewed one of the generals in the, in the military. He said, I speak as you know, an expert, a world expert on, on ordnance. This bomb cannot work. It will never work. There, it's entirely impossible. And it, the problem is that we're, we're relying on what we knew to be true based on historical things which are based on assumptions that may not be complete, even though they're useful assumptions. Would you support that? I mean, you've studied bio, the, the thinking around ethics and morals for such a long time. You, you would know more about that than I would, but I, is I that do the problem? Know, I do know a lot of predictions. Uh, it would, people predicted that the human genome could never be sequenced. I just had my full se- my, I just had mine sequenced uh, like a month ago. <laughs> the whole one, not 23andMe. <laughs> I mean, it's astonishing how, how fast things have happened. Right, and people just can't imagine that things could happen. This so one of the reasons um, when I was testifying before Congress is I said I think cloning is just a tool, and you should never take a tool off the table. You never know when you might need it. All right, that that immediately says well, what about uh, heroin and LSD and things like that? That those are illegal. We don't we don't do research on those, and you know they're they're mostly banned. Would you? Would you support that same statement for those? I think you should. Well, yes. I mean, it's a tool. You know, a hammer is a tool. You can kill somebody or you can build a house or habitat for humanity. I, I, I tend to agree with you. Some tools are more dangerous than others and might require more learning before you use them. Uh, yeah. But okay. So I, okay. I, I, I agree. Uh, outright banning something uh, seems like a bad idea. What about... Making it a federal crime. That's That's pretty heavy. It is pretty heavy. Okay, but what about like research on uh, making anthrax uh, airborne and communicated by mosquitoes? Like really bad bioweapons kind of research. It seems like there's got to be like, like some limits on this stuff, right? Like couldn't cloning be one of those things you don't know, but three generations from now everyone falls over? Like, like the... Well, you know, the, the really interesting question is kind of a little bit to the side is CRISPR. The new... Uh, yeah. yeah. Over the years, you upgrade so many of your things, your cars, your phones, your TVs, even yourself. But when was the last time you upgraded your underwear? Uh, Yeah, upgrading your underwear. I wanna tell you about Tommy John. Not the surgery, the revolutionary men's underwear brand that's redefined comfort for guys everywhere, me included. If you're distracted by your underwear, (laughs) it actually sucks. And a lot of guys' underwear is really uncomfortable. And I like Tommy John's because every pair is crafted from ultra lightweight fabric for maximum breathability. The legs never ride up, the waistband never rolls down, and they've got a patented 21st century design that makes it impossible to get a wedgie. And I don't know if you fly as much as I do, but getting a wedgie on an airplane sucks. Now. I've tried all kinds of different underwear brands trying to find the perfect fit, and Tommy John is simply the best there is. And they've got a lot more than unbelievable underwear. Their undershirts go on like a second skin and never come untucked. I don't even understand what sort of weird alchemical magic they use, but that's actually real. You put the undershirt on and you forget it's there, and your shirt stays tucked in. 
even their socks are engineered to stay up all day. And it's those tiny things you do, the little attention to detail that makes something truly bulletproof. And the little tiny things that you would never even imagine that someone paid attention to and tested, it's all in there in socks and underwear. And what you get is just a different experience. And you actually have more energy when you're comfortable all day. All Tommy John underwear is backed by the best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee, which is totally cool. So Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Head on over to tommyjohn.com slash bulletproof to experience life-changing comfort and get a full 20% off your first order. That's tommyjohn.com slash bulletproof for 20% off the best pair of underwear you'll ever experience. tommyjohn.com slash bulletproof. Tell, tell our listeners what CRISPR is. I'm, I'm very intrigued. Uh, I, I want to use it on my mitochondrial DNA right now. And I'm also uh, you know, a little concerned about this. So, so walk, walk us through CRISPR. What is it? Why should we pay attention to it? I can't tell you the exact words that the acronym stands for, but what it is, it's a very <laughs> fast, cheap, accurate way of injecting a gene, a new gene, into a creature to create what you want. You can make a goldfish glow green in the water, or you can put something in a tomato to make it won't freeze. The, the really big difference is, in the past, you needed like a $10 million lab to do this kind of stuff. And now maybe a grad student can do it with $10,000. How do you control that? Uh, we very quickly arrive at the uh, William Gibson School of Cyberpunk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. And we better think it through a little bit. Uh, I'm not even sure. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying in ethics, odd implies can. I don't know if we can regulate that. It's so uh, powerful and so easy. It, it seems like it'll be about as regulated as meth labs. Uh, okay. That's I, I mean, watch Breaking Bad, back of an RV. It's not that hard to do. It's not that simple and people die and do bad things. But the, the problem is with, with human cloning and with all of these, these things, if you create something, and this, this goes straight to the Monsanto side of things, you, you create something that can self-replicate in the wild, that does share its genes with other things via pathways that we didn't even necessarily know about, uh, you, you can't undo that once it's it's out in the wild in the environment. Like, like uh, are you concerned about that? I, I know that that you you tend to, to be open to the GMO things. I I just I don't know what happens when you get genetic drift between species through soil bacteria and things like that. I, well, I, I mean, I let's suppose we originated one person by cloning who had special characteristics. Those are unlikely to be passed along unless you use cloning again, because if it's if it's just sexual breeding you know we got seven billion people on the planet all busily trying to reproduce but, but uh, one one in 200 of us is related to genghis khan that's true uh <laughs> but it's being washed out and with okay. progression with regression to the mean it's almost impossible to improve the human genome or to degrade it because we got this huge wash towards the norm seven billion people all trying to norm out there's a there's a better scenario. Okay. More likely. Not, this is not the eugenics of Mengele, but what I call family self-evolution. Okay. What is that? Well, it's kind of like where you see certain Asian or Indian families very carefully arranging a match, sometimes by caste and subcaste. And I, I can see certain families who, who have the ability to control who their kids mate with, not all people do, mm -hmm. very carefully selecting... Uh, maybe an uncle 
to replicate by cloning and keeping it in the family and creating a kind of superior dynasty. So, so now we're, we're talking about the movie Dune or the book series, that the Kisatz Haderach, like the, the multi-generational breeding of humans to, to have unusual abilities. Let's get some kind of scary stuff, though, for the rest of us, right? Well, I think ethically it's interesting because some of us are worried about inequality, the 1% versus the 99%. Yeah. This would be a kind of biological inequality, mm-hmm. right? Really written in the genes, very deep stuff. And it would... It really would give some people an incredible advantage. But aren't, aren't there already some people who are just born smarter than hell with brains that work? And beautiful, uh, too. Yeah, yeah, right? With great families. I mean, I, I apologize for being one of those all the time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> you, too, obviously. And <laughs> Not going there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it, it's one of the, those things where, where every generation, there are some people like that. It doesn't mean that they'll be, end up at the top of society. They, they might be... You know, brilliant but and beautiful, and, and they're more working. likely to, though. Yeah, they're more likely to, but they could end up working in the back of a diner and you know doing doing nothing you know one ever knows about, um, but still really smart and really beautiful. And well, this is um, kind of the argument. Yeah. One of the one of the biggest objections to human cloning is the so-called Michael Jordan argument that if you originate a child from Michael Jordan's genome or LeBron James's, what do you think you're going to get? everybody's going to think they're going to get a basketball player, right? And maybe that's unfair to the kid to put that expectation on him, that he's got to be a basketball player. So my, my first book was about epigenetics. And it was like, now that we know that the environment programs genetic expression to a large extent, uh, what do we do with that knowledge? And mine was, well, before you get pregnant and while you're carrying a baby, you should optimize the environment to have a smarter, healthier kid. Uh, we did this for both of my kids. I have no idea if they're smarter than they would have been because I don't have the ability to do A-B testing between my kids. Like, there's, <laughs> It just doesn't work like that. But um, I was also concerned about them having uh, autism or at least Asperger's syndrome because it runs in my family and certainly it's something that I had dealt with. And... Uh, it, it seems like it worked, and, and the program is out there, and, and we're learning new things all the time. If you take someone and you look at their their genetics and you clone them, the environment is going to program the clone very differently than it did the original thing, right? Or are that, they going to? And that's one of the cool things about Orphan Black, because it's like a living lesson of exactly what you said. So you got all these leaders. Uh, you know, Lita was the a queen of Sparta. Uh, they're all from the same genetic base or the same genome, but they're different. Yeah, very different personalities, and they all look generally the same with different hairstyles, but but not the same personality at all. Absolutely, and uh, I I mean I teach lots of kids here at Alabama Birmingham, and some of them are identical twins. Identical twins are not identical; just very small differences in the uterus or in upbringing. It's amazing, twenty five years later, how different they are. So imagine seven identical, seven embryos from the same genome, but one's raised in Ukraine, one's, you know, uh, a single, raised by a single mom. You're going to get really huge uh, differences. I think epigenetics is fascinating. I really do. I, I recently learned just a, a kind of a personal insight that epigenetics has survival value in evolution because how the genes are expressed it's kind of matter whether you like, say you have a lot of water or no water, a lot of food or no food. Different traits will come out. And that has survival value oh, yeah. that different traits can be expressed. 
I just never thought of it that way. It looks like uh, my view of the world now, I'm, I'm working on a book about mitochondria, uh, and it's becoming more and more clear that the mitochondria sense the environment around you because they're dealing on a second-by-second basis with energy availability and all of the environmental inputs, and that, that they're calling the shots a lot more so than I used to believe. Like, like we have the genes, but the genes just sit there. The mitochondria are kind of moving around all the time. What's this? What's this? What's that? And then influencing what genes get selected. So you can take someone and you expose them to a lot of stress when they're young, and they're optimized for a stressful environment, and you can get those same mitochondria say, oh, there's plenty of fuel here. Like, let's optimize some genes for growing and expanding. And that was kind of the thesis for the first book. But I didn't know the mitochondria were so active. They're sort and, of the powerhouse. Yeah, but they're also the sensors. Like, like yeah. they, they're, they're modulating that power to then choose which of the genes get, get done. And, and we didn't know any of this stuff you know, 25 years ago. Uh, we knew some things about genes, but I don't think epigenetics as a, as a science. Like, like we, we had hints of it. Um, but, uh, but you know what? In, in England, they're they're actually doing mitochondrial transfer. I, I've been wanting to do that. I have crappy mitochondria. Uh, like like they're well, it's for people <laughs> who have like really bad diseases, the right yeah. you know, like Alzheimer's or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that just like knocked down whole generations of people, Tay Sachs, uh, and the families just they want to escape it. But it is there is a kind of border crossing there because it's not normal genetic therapy. You know, where you just would do one child, it's hereditary. It's germline. Well, here, here's what I want to do. And Jack, tell me whether you think this is ethical. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my mom's side of the family particularly has a lot of autoimmunity. I had, had it as a kid. I had arthritis when I was 14. I'm sensitive to toxic mold. I'm one of the one in four of us who has the HLA genes for that. Uh, and I probably have some mitochondrial damage, certainly some weakness from taking antibiotics for many years. I am interested in having mitochondria from four different, uh, four broadly different uh, types of, of, of women in my cells. So if I could, I would want to have mitochondria that were able to thrive in different types of environments so I could have the most resilient system possible. What do you think about taking one person and giving them mitochondrial DNA from four different people so that they have superpowers? Well, as far as I know, you have to do this in an embryo. <laughs> so far, yes, but give us so time. <laughs> um, I would probably take it one person at a time because uh, one of the things you don't know is what happens when you mix things. Um, and, uh, you know, you get combinations and permutations. It's hard to know. We know it's okay because of stem cells. Like if you can get stem cells from someone else, all of those stem cells will have the DNA, the mitochondrial DNA from the donor of the stem cells rather than your own, and they seem to cohabitate pretty nicely. Do you know the quote for the, the, the beautiful but vapid woman when she asked George Bernard Shaw about having children together? Uh, no. <laughs> she said, oh, George, what children we could have. You know, they could have my beauty and your brains. And you know what his reply was? He said that they, they might get his beauty in her brains. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a very fair point. Who, who knows how that would end up? But uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm so intrigued by this stuff. Would, I mean, so, you so, could get, you, take your four women, you could get the worst of the four women. That, so someone with more mitochondrial weakness. I'm, I'm assuming I would, I would screen for strong mitochondrial donors and... <laughs> I mean, we are coming up on a world where this isn't, I, I talk about this and people sort of think, oh, Dave's just being weird, but I'm actually really serious about this. Like, like I, I injected my own stem cells into my cerebral spinal fluid about uh, four or five weeks ago uh, at a clinic in, in Florida. 
to have my brain have uh, essentially less inflammation and, and more growth. I'm the second person to do it prophylactically. But like, I, I do these things and I'm, I'm profoundly interested in living a long time and feeling amazing and, and growing my, my ability to, to do the things I do every day. So there will be people like me who are working at the, the cutting edge of this biohacking stuff who are going to, to run that experiment. I, I believe it'll happen clearly within my lifetime and probably within the next 10 or 15 and years where I'll be able to do one it. One of the questions is whether you can patent what you discover too. Oh, yeah. I, I would hope not, actually. that The techniques to do it would probably be something that would take a while to get out there. I don't like patenting humans. It seems bad. But um, it, would it be okay? I, I mean, if 15 years from now, I'm like, wow, I really am looking younger. By the way, I do look younger now than I did a couple years ago. Uh, I'm feeling better. Uh, I can sleep less. I, like, I, I kind of have an unfair advantage. It's the name of my supplement, for God's sake. Um, would, would, is that ethical for me to, to do all those things? I, th- I think with your own body and your own life, you can do whatever you want. Uh, it's what you, if you intentionally, though, harm your children or subject them to risk, that's a little different. Okay. So then is it ethical for a mother to take, uh, say, a, a smart drug that increases dendritic sprouting? During, uh, during gestation. Dendritic sprouting for people listening is basically the interconnections in the brain to allow the, the baby's brain to grow more so that the baby is, is potentially substantially smarter. By the way, there are drugs that do that and no, I won't tell you what they are because, <laughs> but I know what they are and I, I, I'm concerned about people using them because we don't know all the side effects, but is that ethical? I, I think in bioethics, it depends on the motives. So okay. uh, if she's motivated that for, for a good reason to have a better kid, fine. I mean, there are people who, yeah. I don't know if you know about the controversy about people who are dwarfs who only want a, a child who's small. I've never heard of that. Okay, well, tell me about that. No, well, I, I don't spend a lot of time on, on, on the dwarf side of things, but it, it sounds like a really interesting uh, mental... I, I actually uh, think the word dwarf is now not acceptable. It's they're little persons. Little person. okay, cool. The little persons of America. Okay. Well, the, the idea is that uh, it's a, there's also the controversy about deaf parents only wanting a deaf child. I've heard of this. Right. And the argument is, look, our whole culture is centered around signing and being deaf. Our whole culture is, is centered around being small. And if our child is not like this, we'll be depriving that child of the culture. It's kind of like Native Americans who say we want a kid to be raised in Native American culture, not in Caucasian culture. So... It, I, I don't think that's really being properly motivated. It's not really the best thing for the child to be deaf. Okay. So it, a lot of it depends on the motives of the parents and, and doing the enhancement. So, so if, if the, <clears throat> here's, here's a really interesting ethical conundrum. I'm, I'm so happy to get to ask you this because bioethicism is, is an area of interest, but I'm not a pro, so, so it's, thank it's, you. It's the most interesting field, I think, in academia today. Uh, it, it very, I, I see why you might be biased, but I totally buy you by what you're saying there. All right, so in this scenario, uh, there's a one in a hundred chance that the baby's going to be uh, uh, profoundly mentally handicapped, and there's a ninety-nine hundred chance that the baby's going to double its IQ and live fifty percent longer. And the mother's like, "I want what's best for the baby. I'm going to roll the dice." Are we still ethical? 
question. Yeah, I think so. That sounds like normal <laughs> sexual reproduction. <laughs> <laughs> With those odds, you're absolutely right, actually. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, the, the, the moral question there, okay. sex with him? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's say it's 50-50, though, right? So, you have a kid who lives twice as long as twice as smart, or a kid that lives half as long and is half as smart. Uh, that, that, that's a, I, I mean, I think a lot of people might take that, uh, might take that, that gamble. I, I don't know. Well, let me, let me turn it around. If you were a dictator, would you ban women from smoking and drinking during pregnancy? I probably would. I'm, I, I'm torn on that one. The, the whole, my, my, I, I, I believe those are evil things to do. I just don't know whether banning them is, is going to do anything. People will do them anyway, and then you just end up throwing them in jail. It's sort of like banning pot, like, like, like maybe educating people and making it so that they don't feel like they need to do those things would be a better approach. I, I, I tend to say, like, it's your biology, you can do what you want, but if your biology is going to harm your baby on purpose, I, I would like to stop you from doing that. Fair point. I, I've just seen a lot of 20-somethings, I think, that were pretty damaged by their parents drinking. Yes, it, it's and totally you, true. And you know, it goes through semen, too. Mm-hmm. Even, oh, absolutely, I have, yeah. I even read a study that if your grandfather was an alcoholic, it can affect the grandchildren. It, it affects the, the semen quality, uh, for sure, in the dad. That's part of the program in the Better Baby book was, like, dad has to behave himself, too, because you, you need strong mitochondria for the swimmers to swim upstream to, uh, to meet the egg, and... and you can damage it smoking in the first the three days. For dads, it's about six weeks. For women, really three to six months of clean living changes what egg gets dropped. But what what was amazing to me, because it sounds like Lysenkoism, is that the granddad drinking, those effects can come mm-hmm. down. Regardless of whether the, the, the guy in between may be a teetotaler, the grandkid is still affected. That's amazing. Yeah, your grandparents had an amazing effect on, on who you were. Um, what your grandmother ate has at least as much impact as what your mom ate. And, and like, that's pretty recent thinking. It, it is very recent thinking. And that's one of the reasons I, like, I wrote that, that first book. Because like, now that we know epigenetics is real, good God, what am I going to do? I'm going to have kids. In fact, my wife was infertile when we started this. So we, we restored her fertility using this, uh, this kind of knowledge, not, not IVF or cloning or anything. It was just food and toxins. Uh, but then understanding, okay, if we have this stuff, what are their kids going to do? And then looking around and saying the ethical conundrum is much different for someone who say what you're doing now affects the next two generations at least. Uh, yet we still allow all sorts of things that are quite harmful for our genetics to be sold in the store. I, I, I find the whole thing kind of confusing, but it's because I know that it's harmful. And if you don't know, I, and if I was a dictator, I'd probably be banning other things, but I, I might be banning broad, you know, broad spraying of our soil with, uh, with insecticides, for instance. A quick question for all you hardworking entrepreneurs putting in the hours while summer beckons. Has dealing with your day-to-day paperwork ever brought about feelings that resemble anything close to joy, satisfaction, or ease? I didn't think so. If you're ready for that to change, my friends at FreshBooks are inviting you to try the ridiculously easy cloud accounting software that's a total joy to use. And yes, I just use the words easy, joy, and accounting in the same sentence. To see all the ways FreshBooks can bring the joy by changing the way you feel about your paperwork, they're offering all Bulletproof Radio listeners an unrestricted 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com bulletproof and enter Bulletproof Radio in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com bulletproof and enter Bulletproof Radio. 
Looking for a career in tech, maybe business, data, design, or marketing, trying to get that promotion or raise? To excel in your career, you need 21st century training and skills. General Assembly is the largest and most respected school worldwide for people seeking to grow their talents and master the marketplace. Whether it's learning remotely online or in person at one of their beautiful campuses, you can join the 350,000 people who have already gotten the training needed to propel careers in tech and business. Take control of your talent and career now. Find out more at ga.co slash bullet. That's ga.co slash bullet. Enter the promo code bullet to save on your first class, workshop, or event. That's ga.co slash bullet. Code word bullet. What's amazing to me is that every single advance to overcome infertility has been opposed. Every single one. Whether you talk about uh, in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, egg transfer. Um, and this goes back to, um, <laughs> there, was, there was an Alabama doctor, J. Marion Sims, who inv- invented uh, the speculum. And he was mm-hmm. the first guy to try, he used a turkey baster. Mm-hmm. To actually, and he was, you know, condemned from the pulpits as a pervert. And <laughs> it's, it, every time someone has tried to help infertile couples, they've been condemned as playing God. Um, it is just amazing. And, it, you know, these are all people who want children. These are wanted babies. I guess you're only a pervert if you use the same turkey baster that you use in your kitchen. <laughs> Otherwise, just... you're not. I, I, that, that astounds me. But it's true. The people who who have disrupted medicine, reproductive medicine, and all the others uh, have universally always been picked on by the status quo. The same is true in the field of anti-aging, where I've spent a lot of, of my life. All of the people I respect most have been attacked. Absolutely. Uh, some of them just just terribly so, and to the point that I, I celebrate when, when they get attacked. <laughs> I'm like, all right, it means you're, it means it's working. <laughs> you know, it's it's tough. I mean, in bioethics, and I have to sort of call out some of my colleagues. It is so easy just to say no all the time. We have to be cautious. You know, the technology is changing faster than our ethics. It's very hard to get behind something and say. Assisted reproduction, yes, you know. I mean, the Vatican, I know we're not supposed to call out people by name. You can if you want. Uh, they might come on the show later, though. But <laughs> If you get the Vatican on the show, I'm going to listen. <laughs> Just in case he's listening um, uh, to the Pope, you are welcome to come on the show. I'll fly there and interview, and it would be an incredible honor. <laughs> so, <laughs> The Vatican still considers in vitro fertilization a sin. That is a truth. Yeah, don't they still consider condoms a sin too, though? I, I mean, like, seriously. I think, I think maybe Zika is making them <laughs> reconsider that in South America. Okay. <laughs> As they should. But, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what could be more pro-life than a couple? You know, and, you know, assisted reproduction is not that easy. Most of the time it doesn't work. It's expensive. Um, so what could be more? I mean, sometimes my, my students – say, uh, were you wanted? And I said, you know, I don't know. I was born in 1948. All I know is my parents have sex. Uh, <laughs> I mean, abortion wasn't legal then. Uh, birth control pills weren't legal there. When I asked my mother, you know, well, was I wanted, Mom? You know, she's a good mother. Of course you were. But all I know is that they had sex, really. But anybody who was created through infertile fertilization, they really know they were wanted. Because they were really, really wanted. Well, the, there's a whole field of pre and perinatal psychology. 
that, that says that what happens inside the womb affects personality development later in life. Um, I'm actually friends with the founder of the, that, uh, that branch of psychology, uh, Barbara Van Dyson's her name. Uh, and I, I definitely have met people who had PTSD around birth. In fact, I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck and I had PTSD around my, the way I came out, right? Um, it was entirely invisible to me until I you know, paid attention to it for a minute. But uh, is it possible that there are, are changes in the psychology of people who are IVF babies? Sure, it's possible. Uh, has anyone ever studied it? Um, well, of course, people like Dolly, they said that any kids created by IVF are going to have a higher rate of genetic defects. Um, Jeremy Rifkin once said, you know, who knows the effect of putting an embryo against glass and steel? Uh, but it, it looks like uh, it's hard to separate out the fact that the age of the semen for people who use IVF may be older. Women who use, want to use their own eggs, that's another factor. Certainly if you use a young egg, it's, it's very normal. Um, one, another place in in my own book, where I, I've in watching Orphan Black, I found really interesting. And this is one of the most controversial areas: is how sexuality and sexual orientation may be determined by what happens in utero. It it looks like the in utero experience, in, in my view of the world, is profoundly more important than we give it credit for being. And and the number one ingredient to a healthy pregnancy um, from that book was actually love. <laughs> like a baby feeling the mother's love appears to make for better outcomes across every everything you can measure uh, versus a, a baby who's unwanted inside inside mom. And of course, what mom eats and smokes and drinks and all that other stuff is, is profoundly important. Um, it, it just, it, it, it makes me wonder though, we now have a million uh, babies uh, or, or humans that, that are, are based on us around. But I, I wonder whether, not whether we've looked at just the hardware, the genetic expression or incidence of disease, but at the software side of things, like the psychology, right? Like, are, are these happier people? Are they less happy people? I just wonder if we've never looked and then we do this for five generations and we realize, okay, you know, 30% of the population had this thing and there was some stuff that we didn't understand and you know, these people are more likely to be sad or more likely to be depressed or more likely to shoot other people. I have no idea. Like I'm making all this up, but like, like how are we going to catch these things? Because it gets to be a little scary kind of matrix like. Well, I mean, there is one thing that's just kind of common sense that one of the things we know about babies created to assist in reproduction is they're really wanted. And we also, and we also know, unfortunately that a lot of other babies just happen. Very true. And sometimes the marriage doesn't stay, and sometimes oh, yeah. people don't can't really they overestimate their ability to try to do everything, their career. So there is a pretty big demarcation there that could, you know, in in writing my book and studying Northern Black, I kept going to the University of Minnesota, which is like the primary place for twin studies, and they have followed twins for decades, and. There is some really interesting psychology about twindom, identical twins. And some of the stuff I found out was, was kind of surprising to me. There's some pretty sick stuff that parents do to twins. Uh, like sick stuff, like, like dress them the same way or something? I like, I'm trying to imagine. Dress them the same way, always. Uh, call them by the same name, Peter and John. Ooh. 
uh, insist that they're always in the same class in school, that they get they room together in college, uh, that they only date other twins. I mean, and when you ask parents why they do that, they'll say stuff like, uh, oh, when we go to the mall, we get so much attention. So it's all about the parents' psychology. It is. And uh, there's a there's a there's a festival every year in twins. I'm not making this up in Twinsburg, Ohio, where twins come and gather. And uh, there were some interviews where some people, some twins went and they were aghast at what they saw because they were identical twins who basically had no other friends and they just could not separate from each other and become singletons. And so there's wow. a lot of literature about like the evil twin and the good twin and like one twin taking the other one's identity or trying to kill the other one. Part of this actually is when one twin tries to break away in such a nexus, it can be very, very traumatic to the other. So, sort of like the, the ultimate form of codependence that started in the womb and never stopped? There's, a, there's some psychologists who basically distinguish three kinds of twin twindom. There's like a sick dependency, there's kind of a mutualism, and then there's like a genuine, authentic friendship. But it, you can imagine like having somebody just like you in utero, and then up until maybe you're 21, how difficult it would be to separate and to have, and for like a, a spouse to deal with this? Uh, that would be a, a, a whole lot of therapist bills, Absolutely. And then what really gets interesting is you imagine not two, but seven. And that's Orphan Black. That is. It, I have to say, it, it, it's one of my favorite shows, especially the, the first season, the second season. I think I have to watch it with more attention because it, things keep changing too much and I can't remember who's doing what because they all look the same. What the heck? They don't, but, uh, they don't really look the same. Not, that's a fair point. Their hair changes. Oh, Helena <laughs> certainly doesn't look the same. Fair point. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it, it is a, a really cool show, and, and I love it that you're using that as a way to talk about bioethics, which I think a lot of people didn't think about. But when you get to human cloning, I would say on average, I'm guessing, but you probably know the percentage, like, like something like 70% of people, 80% of people would, would just viscerally be opposed to it. Am I right there, or is the debate yeah, more balanced? Maybe, maybe even higher. Maybe it's called the yuck response. You know, they're emotionally revolted. Okay. But so? They were also emotionally revolted when we had the first surgeries, right? Like, like cause yeah. they, you're going to cut inside my body? So, so a feeling of revulsion doesn't mean something's bad, but it does mean we should pay attention to it. I mean, people and, were revolted by interracial marriages and gay men kissing, too. Uh, that's a fair point. So there, there's two kinds of cloning that you write about in your book. There's therapeutic cloning and reproductive cloning. Can you walk through both of those things? And let's talk about each of those differently. Because I'd love for our listeners to, to get a view of, of your perspective on these and why you come at it as, as one or the other or both being good for us. So walk us through the, the science there, or at least the basic definition. Okay. So to me, therapeutic cloning <clears throat> is basically about cloning embryos, and like an embryo of me. And uh, to me, that's kind of like my stuff. If I create an exact copy, and I, I might need that stuff to drip into my brain if I've got Parkinson's or for stem cells, I'm not intending ever to grow that into another me. That's just, that's therapeutic. It's therapeutic cloning. Okay, these right. are just copying a cell. Yeah, embryonic cloning make, make, to make, make some stuff. 
When you say embryonic as embryonic cloning, what's the difference between embryonic cloning and just like growing your own stem cells? Um, because I think it would be, um, st- it depends on whether they're adult stem cells or embryonic stem cells, right? Okay, right. So okay. embryonic stem cells are going to be an exact match for me, and so they're not going to be rejected by my immune system. Uh, and also, I mean, actually, one of the really cool things that has come about in the last couple of years is because of cloning and embryonic cloning, we used to think the embryo was the magic. And now we know the cell is actually the magic. Um, so Shinya Yamanaka in Japan basically won a Nobel Prize for discovering, I can create a copy of you from any cell in your body. Put it, you know, put this nucleus into a nucleated egg, grow the embryo of you, and then tease it to do whatever. So that to me is just kind of, that's one of the things Congress wanted to make a federal crime. Because anything, you know, they said cloning is cloning is cloning. I disagree. I think that's one kind of thing. That's what I call therapeutic cloning. Cloning to produce a child is reproductive cloning. That's a whole different thing. And right now, I think we we can't reliably clone primates. There's something called the spindle problem we haven't solved. And personally, I think until we can reliably and safely clone primates, monkeys, macaques, chimpanzees, we shouldn't try to clone a human. But the other stuff is wide open. The therapeutic cloning. Yes. Yes. So, so let's take the, the harder case first. Would you support this idea of reproductive cloning? So I'm like, I want to have a child. I'm just going to take one of the cells in my body, hand it off to a lab, find a, a womb somewhere, and just make a mini-me, and that'll be my, my son? I mean, would, would you support well, that? At least you at least you said find a womb because it's, <laughs> <laughs> in some of the science fiction they kind of cut out the woman and the nine months of surrogacy. I, I think that would create a, a very unhappy human being if you did that, unless you had a. I, I don't know. I, I I believe that there's a connection that happens with the mom that's not just uh, not just exhaust uh, waste and gas reproduction, but or gas uh, exchange. There, but, there are people working on yeah. an artificial womb, actually. Yeah, but, it's uh, kind of scary, but we might need them if we keep spraying crap around the planet. It's actually, in a way, I hope it doesn't happen because it would be kind of an argument against abortion. Yeah, I, I, I'm just unconvinced that that would be a psychologically and spiritually healthy thing for humans to go through because I know too much about the developmental stages that happen inside the womb. Uh, so, well, yikes. It, it could be okay see, for somebody who doesn't have a womb. Yeah, it, it might. It, there, there might be a case for it, and I wouldn't ban it. But I, I mean, God, I, it just seems like a very bad idea to use that as a as a default mode. Well, and it also lead to bad things. If a woman was drinking too much, the court might order her. Oh, oh yeah. See, you bioethicists just always come up with the the worst scenarios. Yikes! Yeah. Oh, we got to we got to think in advance, right? Somebody's got to think. <laughs> it's not enough for child protective services to take your kids because you knew what they wanted. They actually take your 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 your, your embryo. Ugh, that, that is truly frightening fetus. stuff. Fetus. Yeah, uh, yeah, your fetus. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, like that that's that's creepy stuff. Just uncomfortable to think about. Well, so but, but would would you support reproductive cloning? I mean, as a bioethicist, uh, if people wanted to do that instead of you know have sex or you know find a partner, just ah, I like my genes too much. I'm just going to make a copy. Well, remember I said that one of the ways a judge thinks is by the motives, and so if somebody is just being narcissistic, that's not necessarily 
good thing. But, but, but how, how do you know motives? Are we going to put them on lie detectors? I have a, like, it's very hard to know, and, and people believe their motive is one thing, but oftentimes it's another thing they don't even know about. Well, we know like tennis moms who want, you know, want, want a girl. Or I mean, some people, you ask them, why did you have a kid? And they say, well, when I get old, I want somebody to take care of me. I don't know about that. that that's pretty creepy. I, I, I wouldn't be happy with that. But, you know, one of the things that cloning outs is we normally don't ask people why they have children. We don't mm-hmm. ask them to justify it. We really don't. But when you get – one of the things I found out in my career about assisted reproduction is that it makes people – people want – anyone who uses the new technology has to justify, whereas everybody who creates children in the old way doesn't. Things just mm-hmm. – um, so I don't know if you know this, but when Roe versus Wade was coming along, the court thought about for a while having every woman who wanted abortion come before a panel and justify her decision. That's so ridiculous. It almost happened. It almost happened. Choice is very fragile in our country. My students don't realize how fragile it is. One of the guys I, I really respect is, uh, a guy who's been teaching entrepreneurs for about 35 years. His name's Dan Sullivan. Uh, and he, he's pretty well known in, in business circles. Uh, coaches like lots of very successful people. And one of the tenets of his coaching is, is that you want something because you want it. And you don't have to have a reason for it. Like want isn't a rational decision. A want is an, is an emotion. It's an impulse. So to justify an impulse is to make up a story about a feeling you had. Rather than to say, I had a thought, therefore I had a feeling. And, and I, I tend to support that, that view where, like, there might not be a justification. Like, why, why, why do you want to be on top in bed or on the bottom? Who the hell knows? Like, it felt good at the time. Like, I, I don't know. I just wanted to. Like, why did you want chocolate instead of bananas? I don't know. I just did. It, isn't that, like, a core part of all these decisions? Like, the, they may not be rational decisions at all? It's true. Um, and, you know, I mean, narcissism is a bad word. But it, it sounds better if you say... I want to have children because I want something of me to continue. Or my dynasty, you know, a friend of mine's named Halberstam, and that dynasty has existed for 2,000 years, and I want that to continue. That, that sounds pretty good. Um, but it, it's also, I think, if you take the me out of it and someone said, you know, I loved Uncle Fred. He was funny. He lived to 102. Let's clone his genotype. Or maybe I'll clone the genotype of Brad Pitt or Taylor Swift, and my kid will have all these advantages. That seems to be going in a different direction. And, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be bad for the kid to look like Brad Pitt. Well, I mean, it, it's true that if you were to go out and buy, um, and buy sperm in a sperm bank, uh, sperm from healthy, young, attractive people is worth more. And I'm pretty sure that if, you know, Michael Phelps or insert any other sports star or highly intelligent famous person, if they were going to sell their semen, it's probably worth about a hundred times more um, on the market for semen that I just made up. Uh, well, we actually know about this. There's a, sper- a genius sperm bank in Southern California. The two, most, the two most popular uh, select- selections are from a very handsome pediatrician and a Google engineer. The, there you go. Uh, so and the Google engineer a- has actually outed himself and is now taking care of some of the kids. That's actually really kind of cool. I, I it like really it. It is. Uh, it's in Google uh, Magazine. Okay, so that's one of the magazines I, I probably should be reading, but oh, I'm not. My wife showed me it, so. Okay, there you go. Uh, 
Uh, it, it, it's one of those hey, things. Okay, I don't read People magazine. I'm a philosopher. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff you could read too. That's for sure. I, I write more than I read. Um, I I do think about that though. So if, if people are willing to pay more for for sperm to get uh, unusual advantages for their offspring, is that an act of ego? I mean, is that narcissism? Well, you know, our intuitions differ here. I don't know if you know about the prices for adoption. Uh, I know it's pretty expensive, but... I, I Do you know that the price for a healthy white baby is different than for a baby of color? Uh, it doesn't surprise me that we would have things set up that way, but that's kind of sad. Um, how big of a difference is it? A lot. Wow. You know, like 20000 versus 200 that is really sad. It's also uh, different whether you have a um, closed adoption or an open adoption. So what people really want is the healthy white kid and the mother's gone. Wow. Uh, versus the mother still being around, you know, maybe changing her mind later. Um, there's, um, the, there's also a lot of adoption business where there's, a, there's basically fake pregnancy counseling clinics which are really designed to get you not to have an abortion and to bring your child to term and then the other side of the company arranges the adoption and you're not allowed to sell the baby but you can charge for services you know about this (laughs) it's appalling okay i don't know about this there's a lot it is a very very interesting aspect of the anti-abortion movement, the wow. adoption backside. And there's all kinds of things. There's, there's play, people who pay not only $20,000 for the baby, but they'll pay $10,000 for the mother to go to New Orleans in a special hotel to carry her child. Wow. Yep. So, but anyway, people kind of think, wow, wow, that's bad. You know, different prices and but when it comes to like different prices for sperm and egg, it's like, whoa. <laughs> so there should be this kind of a symmetry, I think, or consistency. You know, if it's bad to charge different prices for different kinds of adoption or different kinds of babies, then maybe it's bad for the char- charge different prices for different sperm or embryo. Or maybe we just shouldn't worry about it at all. You know, like let the market decide. Well, you're a bioethicist. What is, what is your reasoning on that? come down to I'm pro-choice and I say when you open that door you're not going to like some of the choices that some of the people make but you got to go with it it's better than closing the door I I find that if I'm going to let the government make the choices they'll probably suck anyway or some kind of panel or some committee you know they tried to do this where they tried to regulate like how much surrogates would be paid or how much you could sell your eggs for you know, and at first it was like $10,000, and one people said, oh, that's coercive. But the other side said, no, it's exploitive. It's not enough. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> so nobody was happy with the amount they got, and it just kept changing. And, you know, $10,000 to some people is nothing. To other people, it means going without a car, not buying a house. So... It's it's really impossible to set a price. I mean, there was a guy. I don't know if you heard about this. A, a guy in uh, Louisiana who cloned his dog, paid fifty thousand dollars, and they had three tries, and I think one of them made it. 
And people said, what are you doing spending $50,000 on cloning the dog for? What a, what a waste of money. And the guy said, I just bought three Humvees for $50,000 too. It's my money. <laughs> <laughs> and I love my dog. <laughs> Best answer ever. Uh, it, it is an absolute waste of money, except the money didn't go away. It went to someone else who took the money and spent it again. And again, and again. There's a, yeah. There's the, I, it, it's actually more a question of if you have the money and you just and you, you buy gold and lock it away, what business do you have doing that? Because the money isn't working for anyone when you do yeah, that, right? Or bury it in the backyard, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I'd, I'd, I'd rather that, that they spend money on that because at least it supported hopefully some science there. Well, all right. There's, there's a bunch of stuff I, I, want, I want to get to. One of them is, would it be ethical for someone to, uh, to, to clone a copy of their body? that they could use uh, for organ donations. Like, like, so I have a full copy of Dave Asprey in the freezer down there or, or in the, the vat of nutrient fluid. In case I need a new liver, I'll just have one ready tomorrow. Yeah, I think about this, this is going back to the idea that a, a being originated by cloning is not a person. Um, and I, I think that's an old thing. Do you believe that? No. I think, okay. I think it, if you come from human genome and you talk and walk like a human, you're a person. Uh, so it's for the same reason, let's suppose Dave had an identical twin. You can't kill your identical twin for his liver or his heart. Uh, so that's, to me, a person originated by cloning is simply a delayed twin. Okay. So it would be murder. Well, one of the most disturbing science fiction books I ever read, and I wish I could remember the author's name, the, 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 the big uh, antagonist, you know, the, the bad guy in the book, uh, had a habit of cloning himself so that he could like torture his clones because he hated himself so much. I'm like, man, that, that is so ethically nasty. Like just reading that was like, ah, like what kind of a mind comes up with these ideas? That sounds like a short story by Dave Egan called The Extras, where he would parade the copies of himself around the swimming pool. And every once in a while, he would use one of them for like a kidney or a new skin. Uh, pretty Yikes. gross. Yeah. Uh, it's it's some creepy things when when you really just assume that that there aren't people. So so you would assume that a clone is a person, but what if you grew a person with no brain? Uh, G- give them you know, g- give them some virus that takes away all all but the brainstem. I was going to say you need a brainstem to run the yeah. organs. Uh, that gets. I don't know. I have to think about that. Gets to be more like embryonic cloning. It, it, it's it, it, but you know someone's going to do something bad. And the, oh, I meant to grow with no brain. I only have half a brain, but I'm still going to use the liver. And like, like, should we just allow unrestricted? Well, you know, there's an interesting contrast. I, I got I was over in the Far East recently, and um, the the Pacific Rim thinks that uh, we're kind of hung up from our Puritan heritage on worshiping embryos and going slow, uh, whereas they see the, our, our reluctance to sort of jump ahead as their chance. Uh, they're, they're taking it, and they're right about that. But we're incredibly fearful in the West. And, and there's, there are places where you wouldn't think of would really be really big in the biotech, like Indonesia and mm-hmm. Singapore, that are building like these billion-dollar towers in biotech. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, they come to our conferences and they try to get everything they can, proprietary. Yeah. And, uh, but 
you know, I, I think we're a little bit there of gene therapy because we've had some setbacks. And, uh, I mean, there, there's a guy here at my shop at UAB who can, I think, he's already cured sickle cell in a mouse. Wow. Uh, but he's not allowed to try it in a human, partly because we're in Alabama. We have a lot of black people. We had the Tuskegee syphilis study here, uh. Uh, which was run by the federal government. You know, not by doctors here. Uh, but still, the government basically wants a guarantee that the first person, who's almost certainly going to be African-American, that we try this on uh, won't be hurt. And there's no way you could guarantee that. Well, it, it, it's, it's outrageous, the, the limitations on that. If, if you're the person with sickle cell anemia, it's your choice. It's not the government's choice. You know, my, my biology, my body, uh, my choice. And, and it, it's, it's very similar to the, the uh, women's movement where it's like, you know, my, my body, my, my, my decision. Body yeah, where, like, like, how dare someone tell me I'm not allowed to use a technique on my body, even knowing full well it may kill me, so what? I'm going to die anyway. Like, like I, this is a, a provable fact. The universe will yeah. end, even if I'm working on immortality. Like, when the Big Bang ends, I'm going to die. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, the, yeah, the tricky thing here is that once the sickle cell starts to manifest, it's probably too late. So you probably need to try it on a healthy person. Yeah, if they sign up on it, like, you know, that same healthy person could go to a party and try some new designer drug that hasn't been done before. Might have good experience. They might end up in the hospital dead. Like, like you know, you, you roll the dice every day whether you acknowledge it or not. You know, there's a, I don't know if you know this, uh, there's an interesting tradition in medicine of auto-experimentation. Larry Altman, used to, an MD that writes for the New York Times, uh, has a whole book on this. So that was the first ca cardiac catheterization was by a guy named Werner Forsman, who did it on himself. These are, the, these are my absolute heroes. Um, there's a guy who implanted his own electrodes he designed inside his brain to finally see what happened in there. A Wired wrote about him recently. Um, and the, these are the world's foremost biohackers. Oh. I, I think I think cardiac catheterization on yourself is pretty amazing. Uh, you have to be a a pretty controlled guy to pull that one off. Pretty confident too. Yeah. And your surgical ability. I mean. Well, have you ever met a surgeon who wasn't overconfident? That's true, but the, but I, but but I've also <laughs> sorry, surgeons listening. <laughs> you know, ophthalmologists are surgeons, and many of them wear glasses. Ooh, good point. Yeah, they don't do the laser on themselves. <laughs> Well, there's another question as a bioethicist. I don't know that we're going sure, to solve. Edit that out. You're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> Fair point. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's true. It, it, it is true. I, I hear what you're saying. So, say, on the cloning question, you're a fan of therapeutic cloning for sure. Mm -hmm. You're also a fan of reproductive or a supporter of the right to reproductive cloning, assuming though that, that it's it's the same set of rules you would have around having another child. I don't want to make, I don't want it to be a federal crime. I, when it okay. become when it becomes safe in primates, I want people to be able to use it. I got it. I, I think making things federal crimes is generally a bad idea for almost everything. So I, I could see that, but I, I would prefer to see a world where people would actually just have babies uh, rather than cloning themselves it seems like like the, the, it is a slippery slope but like you said making it illegal uh it doesn't seem like it serves but, a purpose you, you know so I hear that. You, you, 
you can't think of all the possibilities. There was this thing in Catholic ethics called casuistry where they tried to think of like everything in advance and they failed miserably. <laughs> you know, like the, if you yeah. believe in the resurrection of the body and they amputate a leg, what do you do with the leg? <laughs> so when I wrote my first book on cloning, I would get these letters. Like I got this letter from a woman in Georgia who was a retired high school biology professor. And her in Georgia, they have ice storms. And her son, her only son, tried to help her once. His tree fell in the house. He fell off and he was brain dead. He's a wonderful guy. He was a comedian. He raised dogs. He was engaged to an assistant dean of a law school. He was also a, a life donor. And so they took him to the hospital. They preserved his body. And uh, Marion wanted to clone him. She was a widow. And they said to her, you know, Marion, cloning that genome is not going to bring back Mark. And she said, I know. I'm a biology teacher. I know the difference between a phenotype and a genotype. I know he's not. But I don't got anything. I got nothing. Why can't I have something of Mark back? And his fiance was actually willing to, to gestate an embryo. Wow. Mark. But nope, we can't do this because people said, oh, you're just, you haven't properly mourned Mark's death. That's why you want him back. You just have to get over it and go through the five stages and then you'll become closure. And Marion just said, this is just bullshit, you know. But so you, you never know. I mean, I also got a letter from some people who had their ovaries and, um, so people had some genetic diseases where they could never have children themselves, but are very unlikely to ever have a partner also, but still would like to have something genetically related to them. So there are these cases out there, hard luck cases, yeah, but it's, it seems cruel to just say, you know, we're not ever going to let you try. Yeah, it, it seems cruel. And it's also anti, anti-science, like to learn how things work, you work with things and I, I'm... I, I do think there's a, a lot of great evil that could come of it. There's a lot of great evil that can come from almost every technology that we've ever used. And, and so ethics is different than, than technology. Just, I mean, I, I have no financial interest in Orphan Black at all. Yeah. Uh, they, one of the things I really like about Orphan Black is that 95% of the time, they make a really big effort to get the science right. It, it seemed pretty accurate to me. You probably uh, know more about it than I do, but but as a biohacker and, and even a computer science guy, I, I'm pretty impressed so far. Is, is it good? I, I think it is. I mean, one or two times they went crazy for dra- dramatic purposes, Olivier's tale, but uh, otherwise... <laughs> that was the best part. <laughs> <laughs> no, the best part was Helena cutting it off. <laughs> uh, yes, okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, they they really do try to get it right. I mean... Could there be a trans clone like Tony? Yeah, there really could be, based on what happened. You know, there. I mean, talk about the uterus. Uh, I don't know if you know about the fetal dex controversy, where basically if you take a fetus that would otherwise be female and you expose her for what, to t- a lot of testosterone early on, she will become kind of a butch lesbian. She'll be a... Yeah, I, I've heard about that. Okay, okay? right. There's a drug that counteracts that. Wow. That you can give in utero. And the controversy is, if you ask parents, look, if you give this drug, your female embryo will become a normal female. 
If you don't, she'll be a butch-ass lesbian. Some people say, there's nothing wrong about being a butch lesbian. Like, so what? But if you ask most parents, they would rather have a normal girl. Uh, but one of the, 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 to me, the one of the most interesting things is that what happens pretty early on in the embryo in terms of being exposed to this testosterone very powerfully affects how you're attracted to people. Mm-hmm. And just overwhelming evidence that this, this occurs. There's the, and it's not a choice either. I mean, it's just there. No, it, it happens. There's a thing about the, the length of your third finger and your first finger if you have more testosterone exposure. Uh, my, um, my grandmother is, is hyper-intelligent. <clears throat> She's uh, got an advanced degree in nuclear engineering and uh, it is really fascinated with this stuff and has a longer, I think it's ring finger than forefinger. And she, she thinks that her brain works the way it does because she has more testosterone than average. Uh, and, and like it's one of her core things, like I'm pretty darn sure this is why. Um, do you think that there's some credence to, to that early testosterone exposure and the cognitive development as well? Or do we just not know? I think we don't know. Well, we, we, I would posit we better not be developing artificial wombs until we know the answer to that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things about cloning, I mean, even like cloning dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so like this guy in Louisiana who cloned the dog. I mean, we, there's, one of the things that's really amazing is how political the nature-nurture controversy is, right? I mean, there's a lot of people have a lot riding on both sides. Like liberals want everything to be nurture. Conservatives want everything to be genetic in nature. Well, when we clone uh, a dog, a mongrel, and we get, we're either going to get the same dog and the same personality, or we won't. It's going to be really interesting to find out. There's this, there's the Missy Project in Texas, where at Texas A&M, where they're, you know, you can clone your dog or your CC the cat. We'll find out how much is nature and how much is nurture. It, it is going to be a fascinating next 20 years. I, I have one more line of inquiry for you, and then we'll wrap up the show. Mm-hmm. This has to do with smart drugs. Mm-hmm. When I was going to business school, I, I went to Wharton. I took a, a powerful cocktail of smart drugs. I took modafinil, which is... I know what modafinil pre- is. Okay, it's pretty much the one from uh, Limitless, the movie, for, for listeners. Mm-hmm. I took anaracetam. I took a whole bunch of other stuff. I, in fact, I, they're not against the rules, but I was kind of concerned about this. So I, I told my other students, at least during the first couple of days, I had a row of smart drugs on the, the desk. I'm like, I'm taking these. <laughs> like, full disclosure here. Uh, was that ethical? Sure, it's your brain. We might, uh, I don't know if you know that, we might do another one of these. I wrote another book before this one. It's called How to Build a Better Human, an ethical um, blueprint. And I might have that on my shelf somewhere. I, have, I tend to buy books with I, titles I, I like can, that. I can send you a copy. I'd love uh, to check it out. Uh, the ones, you know, about, and, you know, I t- do the whole spectrum. And I think, you know, a lot of residents take my daffodil now. Oh, it, you're crazy not to. I, I, might, I might probably have, have put it, I put it into the national consciousness more than it was. I was an early adopter, and I was on national news a few times on uh, ABC Nightline uh, and things like that, talking about how like it kind of saved my career, and I don't think I would have graduated without it. But I, I, I mean, I kind of feel like I was doping, but I also don't feel like doping is unethical in the slightest. As long as you tell people what you're doing, I want people in the Tour de France to, to just tell us what they're doing so we can benefit from their experiments. It, it's annoying if they die with their secrets because then no one gets to benefit from them pushing limits. I, 
I was at a medical conference a couple of years ago and I was talking to a dean and um, she told me this amazing thing that it used to be that hardly any medical students came in of ADHD mm-hmm. and now about a third by the time they graduate get diagnosed of ADHD. Wow. You know why? It's not because they really have ADHD. It's because they needed Adderall so they could study. They can get it legally and ethically. And it's it's become a kind of arms race in medical school to have your maximal cognitive ability. And if everybody (laughs) else is taking it, the, the the number of residents who have have emailed me to say uh, I use bulletproof coffee for, for my for my exams or during residency it's it's a lot of them have just reached out on Facebook or whatever for, for that reason like anything that gives you more energy uh, via all of the pathways but do, do you know, I mean, do you know are, about what Paul Erdos said about this no you know what an Erdos number is no um, he was one of the most famous mathematicians he was a methamphetamine yeah. addict. Uh, an Erdos number is how close you were to Erdos. Like if you have an Erdos of one, you were like right next to him or two, you were taught. Well, so once somebody said, I bet you can't give up amphetamines for a month. And he said, sure, I can. And he did. And so at the end, they said, well, do you feel better? He said, no. Uh, do you feel bad? Said, so, yeah, because mathematics really suffered for that last month. <laughs> I did absolutely nothing. No proofs. It, 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 this is such a, we could probably do a whole show talking just about the ethics of smart drugs, but for every person like that who apparently methamphetamine may be really beneficial for his math, uh, it, it may also be taking time off his life and, and it may also be causing a lot of other addicts and you have know, meth moms and like it. There's definitely ethical questions there, but I'm I'm firmly on the side of look. It's my body. I'll make lots of stupid mistakes, and how dare anyone decide that they can tell me what mistakes I make with my own body? Like I I just reject that as, as a fundamental thing. I pick what I eat. I pick what kind of exercise I do, and I pick what chemical substances I'm going to use to put my brain where I want it to be. And like like if, if you think I'm not allowed to do that, you're probably wrong. I don't know if you saw yesterday. It was a new study on pot use in Colorado over the last decade. No, what, what came out with that? It's like the Journal of Drug Studies. But, and basically what they, they, they discovered is that um, if you ask people 10 years ago, of all the people who use pot, how many are daily users? Back then it was like maybe one in nine. Now it's like one in three. Wow. But on the other hand, that's probably anybody going to jail. And, you know, our... There are hardly anybody committing crimes to, f- to fuel it because it's legal. So there are some people who are daily users, but the social cost is like <laughs> minimal. And they're all paying taxes, too. And they're all too high to commit real crimes, so it's okay. <laughs> it's Well, it's actually pretty cheap. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, like, like, like you know, I, yeah, I was yeah, going yeah, to yeah. rob a bank, but I just smoked a joint instead. It was easier. I'm just kidding. but. <laughs> Well, it's certainly more expensive for society to lock them all up, isn't it? Oh, it is indeed. That's another whole ethical conundrum. Um, well, I'm not sure that I'm convinced that that cloning is a good thing, uh, especially reproductive cloning. I am convinced that it ought not to be illegal because when we make things illegal, people do them anyway. They just do them in other countries that are less restrictive uh, for, for lack of another thing. So I'm uh, I'm on the the uncomfortable side that says it should be legal, but let's uh, let's have some oversight and let's have some uh, 
let's have some awareness of what's going on. I'd, I'd, I'd like there to be, uh, I'd like there to be a, a reporting system in place so that we all know what's happening versus it happening in the deep dark recesses of some laboratory somewhere and no one knowing. Um, that's both for our evolution as a species and just because if people are doing evil things, it's good to know about it. I I agree. I mean, I I lived through the AIDS era. We had an underground pharmacy in Mobile, um, and uh, people were trying all kinds of stuff. And one of the problems is that there was no reporting system. Yeah. We need to know. We do indeed. Well, it's becoming a very interesting world. It's only going to get more interesting with all the synthetic biology and all the other things like that happening. Um, I've got my full human genome sequenced. I'm uh, doing neurofeedback uh, with, with unusual settings. I'm running my own neuroscience laboratory now uh, <laughs> uh, and hacking the heck out of my brain. It, I, I believe it's making me a better person, uh, more aware. It, it, I, I'm absolutely going to live longer with what I'm doing now than I would have otherwise, unless a bus hits me, in which case, you know, what the heck. Uh, and the quality of life that I experience seems to be a lot higher. And uh, I I also think it's kind of unfair that, that those things aren't widely available and I'm working to make them more widely available. Um, but who the heck knows? There's so, so many choices now more than ever before that, that I, don't, I don't think any one person or any one, uh, one organization ought to be in charge of what's allowed and what's not allowed. That, that seems like very scary to me. I agree. And I also think that uh, for all those young people out there, that, that bioethics is probably the most interesting field to go into because every year something new comes along. Face transplants, CRISPR. It's amazing. Yeah, there's, I think it's a ripe field. It's a very interesting field. It is. Now, Gregory, everyone who's been on the show, uh, I, I always ask everyone the, the same question at the end, and I think your answer might be very different than average. Um, and the question is, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, given everything you've learned in your life, everything you know, your, your entire experience, um, I'd like your advice. I want to be better at everything I do. I want to be better at being a human being. I want to kick ass at life. What are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you offer them? I would say find joy in what you do. Find joy in what you do. Find joy in what you do. <laughs> all right. Putting all, all three in one. Everything will take care of itself. You are the first person in more than 300 to, to use all three votes on the same thing. That, that's cool. <laughs> I um, love weird. what you do. I'm idiosyncratic. Very, uh, very well said, uh, Gregory. I appreciate you thinking about all these uh, strange corner cases, all these hard situations, and then talking about it. And I appreciate it that you like Orphan Black, because after all, it's a pretty darn cool show and the first show to use biohacking. So to the Orphan Black people, if you hear this, thanks for your cool show. I want to send you some Bulletproof coffee because I think you guys are cool, but you probably already drink it anyway. So thanks for your hard work, Gregory, and thanks Orphan Black team. And thanks to listeners for tuning in on this one. If you like the show, It'd be awesome for you to read Gregory's book. Gregory, where can they find your book? In Barnes & Noble or on Amazon. Tell us the title one more time. What we talk about when we talk about clone book. Or you can Google Orphan Black and Bioethics. Beautiful. And again, this was Gregory Pence. Gregory, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.